Welcome to uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. My name's Nick. Um, I am one of the elders, lead pastor. Happy to bring you God's word. Uh, if I haven't met you as as usual, I would uh, love to meet you afterwards. So please stick around. Um, but beyond that, I, I do know we had a uh, little woman's tea uh, yesterday. I was curious. Did it go good? Women encouraged? Yeah. All right, all right, good. Yeah, they were they were making some of the the food over over at my house on Friday night, and I'm sitting there going, you know, because they're you know getting stressed out because it's got to be your little your cakes have to be circular and per, and the, the frosting's got to be on there. I'm like, you just need to start cooking for the men. We don't care at all, you know. If it's food, we are on it, you know. I don't care if there's a little frilly sprinkle on there or not. Uh, Anyways, it looked like it was a lot of fun, and I wish I was able to go, but uh, I'm not a woman. So, hopefully you had fun. And a good Mother's Day last week as well. Uh, you want to know what, what Megan wanted to do for Mother's Day? She wanted to go home and take a nap. <laughs> that was it. That was it. I was like, okay, I could do that. Um, let's get into God's Word. Luke chapter 3 is where we're at. If you need a Bible, you can... Uh, Raise your hand and the, the ushers will bring one by and keep it if you don't own one or if you want to give it away. So happy to have Daniel uh, in the back there. And he even came up to me and said, hey, there's a guy in my, my little place I live that, that needs a Bible. Can I take one? Yes. The answer is always yes. Uh, please give them away. Um, Luke chapter 3 is where we are in our journey through Luke's Gospel. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then uh, I'll pray and, and get us into it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray. God, sometimes the, the thought staggers me that You're looking into our hearts right now. That you know who we are. 
in the deepest places. And God, it, it amazes me that even though you know us there, you know all our fears, you know all our rebellions, you know all our sins, all the junk, the stuff in our closet that we don't want anyone else to see. You speak into that place with grace. And you call us out. You call us out not to humiliate, not to rub our faces in our mess, but to heal us, to help us, to turn us from the evil way towards the way of life. I believe you want to speak through this text this morning into our hearts in such a way. And I, I ask you, God, that you, you do it. Don't let me get in the way, Lord. I pray that I would be an instrument in your hands. I pray that you would speak to me just as much as you would speak to anyone else here. I need it. We need it. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you relentlessly pursue your people with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, in our text this morning, Luke basically now catapults us from the years of John and Jesus' infancy and youth, which was chapters 1 and 2, into now the years of their manhood. Um, this would not make a very good uh, family album. You know, you got the first two years, and then, or the first few years, and then everything's just kind of blank in between. But Luke is trying to take us to the points in these men's lives that matter most. And so... What we saw last, where we left off in chapter 2, is uh, Jesus about 12 years of age, right, in the temple. And where we're going to see him uh, again uh, in verse 23 of chapter 3, when we see him now, he's 30. He's about 30 is what Luke says. He doesn't get specific. So 18 years now have passed. It's good to see Celestine. I didn't even know you were here. Look at that. Glad to have you back. Sorry about that. That was cool. I Megan and I were talking about you last night, wondering when you were going to be back. Um, 18 years have passed. And as, as John uh, kind of was the first one on the scene in chapters 1 and 2, right? He kind of was the first one mentioned and we got into his story first. So too now we, we kind of enter into these later years, the years of their, their maturity, manhood, uh, with John. And this is not, not, not to be besnaken, uh, that, that as if John were more important, more significant. It's actually quite the opposite. John is the forerunner, right? He is preparing the way for the Lord. And that's what we read there in verse 4. He's come to prepare the way of the Lord. So John, naturally, 
as the forerunner comes first. And as I was reading this text, I want you to kind of see it this way with me. Um, I'm seeing it as, as sort of an ascent, sort of like this climb up to this pinnacle point of, of verse 6, which is where, where we read, all flesh shall see the salvation of of God. That's kind of where I think all this is rising to. And so we're going to try, and as we move through this uh, sermon together, we're going to try to climb with it. And I'm going to help us do that by basically answering three questions. First, who will see? That's verses 1 through 2a, the first part. The second question, how will we see? That's verses 2b through 5. And then third question, what will we see? And that's what we'll tackle in verse 6. We're going to climb up to seeing the salvation of God. First question then, who will see? Who will see? Verses 1 through 2a. In these verses, you might be wondering why I'm even camping out here at all. Actually, I have a lot to say. Um, But if you read these verses and you even saw me, it's like you're kind of stumbling over all the names. The list of these guys that are put there, right? There's kind of this impressive array of individuals uh, that Luke kind of gives us here as kind of introduction or backdrop to the work of John and especially Jesus. If you look again, you see he mentions the emperor of Rome, right? The Roman emperor there in Tiberius Caesar. He mentions the governor of Judea in Pontius Pilate. He mentions three tetrarchs, which is essentially another type of governor. The most significant in the biblical narrative would be Herod. So the son of Herod the Great is there, Herod Antipas. And then he mentions, he's not done, two high priests. You've got Annas, who uh, no longer held the office, but still held influence in Israel. And then you have Caiaphas, who was Annas' son-in-law. So we've got this impressive array of individuals that Luke just kind of opens out this, this, uh, these, these uh, adult years of John and Jesus with. And... I don't have time to go into, I don't even have knowledge to go into kind of these historical individuals one by one, uh, but I, I do want to make a couple observations for us. The first observation is, I think, the plainest. It's right there on the surface of the text, and that is simply this. When Luke sets out to record all the things that had been accomplished among them by Jesus Christ, which is what he kind of says there in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He opens it up. I'm going to record this. I want to record the accomplishments of Christ. When he sets out to do that, he sets out to do it with, he, with a concern for historical accuracy. I mean, that much should be plain by these, this first verse and a half. He is concerned that we would know precisely when this stuff is going on, what the historical context is. He wants, like he said in verse 3, he wants us to know, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, that he has followed all things closely. He has followed all things closely. And so he's going, listen, this is how closely I followed it. This is how particular, how specific I'm getting. I was at this time, this time, this time, this time, this time. In case you missed it, I want you to know right when this is going on. So he's concerned for historical 
accuracy. But this certainly is not all that we must observe. For if all Luke is after here is historical accuracy, it is doubtful that he would have included so many figures. And kind of doing research on this, is that it, he didn't need five or six or whatever, however many figures to kind of locate the, the, the time in history. All he needed was one or two. That's it. So there's more going on here than just historical accuracy. In fact, it would seem that he is especially concerned with what I would call the universal relevancy of all that's happening. Not only does he want to be historic or historically accurate as he's recording the accomplishments of Christ, he wants to show how the accomplishments of Christ or that the accomplishments of Christ are universally relevant. Therefore, he brings together key leaders, not just from the Jewish world, but from the Gentile secular world. He's saying this is not just Jewish history going on here. This is affecting, this is for the world. Such a move is in contradistinction, actually, from the other gospel writers. This was interesting. One commentator uh, notes this. Matthew, Mark, and John introduced Jesus in the context of provincial Jewish messianic expectations. So it's largely just Jewish context is what the other gospel writers are concerned with locating Christ within the Jewish scheme, the Jewish scene. He says this, Luke introduces the gospel in the context of world history. Not just Jewish, but world history. And it leaves us with a clear inference then. The Messiah, whether he's of Jewish root or not, is going to bring the fruit of salvation not only to the Jews, but to the entire world. That's where Luke is going in this kind of awkward, clumsy list of individuals. He's saying this Christ is relevant universally. To the world. It's not the Jews alone who will see Yahweh's salvation, but as the pinnacle point of verse 6 puts it, all flesh are going to see the salvation of God. All flesh. This also, kind of in a way, harkens back to the first verses of chapter 1 of this gospel. Because it's where where we recall Luke is writing this gospel to who? Theophilus. This whole endeavor, this whole project is written to what would appear to be a Gentile, a Greek, a, a, a Gentile brother. And he is writing all these things concerned with historical accuracy so that As he says to Theophilus, you may be, you, Theophilus, Gentile, may be certain of the things that have been accomplished among us. He is writing from the very beginning 
with the world in view. And therefore, as he's kind of setting the backdrop and introducing the adult years and the public ministries now of John and Jesus, he is making sure we don't miss the Christ. Not just this little Jewish Messiah can it come to save a little people here, a little dot on the map. He has come for every dot across the map. Now, this uh, second observation, as I reflected on it, I, I thought it was packed with, 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 with potent implications for our life and mission as a church. And so, bear with me, it might seem like a tangent, but I wanted to sit here for a moment and reflect with you on some things, because I think we can learn a lot from Luke here. He is aware of the universal relevancy of Jesus Christ. He's a Savior for all people. And therefore, Luke labors to tell the story of Christ in the language of the world. He labors to draw lines from the secular world to the gospel. He wants to tell the story of Christ in a way that people out there will see is relevant to them. You see, whether you're a Jewish peasant raised on the Holy Scriptures, or you're a Roman pagan, and you never even heard of Yahweh, Luke is saying, this Messiah is for you. So he marks out the Savior's ministry, not just kind of according to the timeline of, of the Jews, but according to the timeline of secular history, the Gentiles. He tells the story of Christ in the language of the world. And here's the question for us. Are we looking for ways to connect the story of Christ to what's going on in the lives of the unbelievers around us in the world? Are we aware of their rhythms? Are we learning their language? Do we know how they tell time? Do we know what matters to them? Do we know how to get the gospel into their dialect? Or are we pulling away? Are we kind of retreating, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, into our little holy huddle, our little Christian group hug, where we, where we have our own kind of dialect, and no one out there can really understand it if they looked in. As I was thinking of this, I was rem- reminded of my time when I was in Italy. My sister was studying abroad, and I was there. And I stepped into a church. Uh, it was probably a Catholic church, and... and, and uh, but it was awesome. Every church over there is amazing. The buildings and things are incredible. I go in, and these guys are talking about Jesus, but they're talking in a language I don't understand. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sure this is cool, but I don't get it at all. And my thought is, I wonder if people come into church sometimes, and that's how they feel. Or when we bring the gospel to them, or we talk about our Christian life, it seems like another world to them. Now, in some sense it should, right? That's true. But in another sense, we ought to be laboring to bring that to them. We don't want to be parochial. We don't want to be tribal and kind of myopic. We don't want to be irrelevant because Jesus is universally relevant. Does our Christianity only have something to speak to those who are under 
Annas and Caiaphas. In other words, the insiders. Or does our gospel have something to say to those under Tiberius Caesar, those under Pontius Pilate, those under Herod? Does does Christ have something to say to the unbelieving world? Does he only have relevance within the walls of a church? Or is he relevant in the office, in the gym, in the bar? Do we know how to draw the lines to tell the story of Christ in the language of the world? Like we see Luke doing here, just a little example. As I thought more about this, um, I feel like it requires at least three things, seems to me. I'll give you three things here that would love for us to work on as a church so we could learn how to do this. First is presence. And I'm not talking about Christmas presents. I'm talking about presence, being present. And here's what I mean by that. If we are going to learn to, to tell the story of Christ in the language of the world, meet them where they're at, in a way, speak of Him in a way they understand, we've got to be present. We've got to go there. We've got to be in the world, in a sense. We've got to be where people are. We're not just in the monasteries. We're out in the world. We're living in the cities, right? We're in the neighborhoods. Man, I was so encouraged. We just went for a walk around our neighborhood and, and, and we were able to just meet people. I was like, no way, we've got to do this every day. You know, we get busy and all that, and I understand that, but are we, are we making efforts to, to have presence to be there with them? Are we, are we going to the coffee shops that they're going to? Are we uh, you know, lingering after, after preschool, talking to the other moms? You know, Are we going to the office, even though we, they allow us to maybe study or, or do our work at home? Are we there? Are we with them? We're, we're, we, we, we have to be with them if we are to learn how to speak to them if we're to learn their language. If I could distill this into a sentence here, evangelism isn't merely a project on our to-do list. It's actually a person to enter into relationship with. Now, don't hear me say I'm, a, I'm not at all. In fact, we'll probably call the church to try to go out and, 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 and put it on your calendar. We want to go out and share the gospel. But there's a much bigger thing to this. Not just a project here. These are people that we're entering into relationship with. And just like if they were speaking a foreign language, you'd have to learn if you wanted to communicate to them. You'd have to love them. We want to do that with the gospel for Christ. So first thing I think we need is presence. The second, opportunism. Opportunism, here's what I mean. We are praying and we're looking for ways to go deeper with people. Not only are we out, not only are we seeking to be present in the world and with those that don't know Jesus, but we're, we're, we're praying and asking God to open doors. We're looking for opportunities. We're not just kind of going through our days. This is how I so often go with our own agendas, our own plans, and we don't even notice the opportunities around us. We start to cultivate a sense of, okay, wherever I'm at, God, I am a royal priesthood. I want to bring your message to whoever is here. Are you doing that? 
And so we're looking for ways to go deeper with people. And these are things you can't always schedule, right? You have to be opportunistic about it. You can't schedule, you couldn't schedule the fact that your, your co-worker was, was suddenly going to decide to spill out her pain about her, her broken marriage. What do you do with that? You have a lot of other things going on, but this is a chance to go deeper with her. Or, or, or you know, you get invited to go celebrate kind of the, the, the new birth of this, uh, this lady's child. Well, do you take that opportunity and get to know her more and enter into her joy, the baby shower or whatever? Or you just find out walking around, you know, your neighborhood that one of your neighbors just lost his wife of 30 years. They're opening their lives to us. You know, as we kind of do life with them, as we're present, their lives will open up. And we want to jump on those opportunities. We want to be opportunistic and move in, in love. To put it in a sentence, evangelism isn't merely some event on our calendar. It's a way of life. It's a way of life. Third thing we need. So first, presence. Second, opportunism. Third, courage. Courage. As we move out and we're present with, with those in the world, and as we start to, you know, their lives start to open up to us and we come in to situations that they're dealing with, whether good or bad, hard or easy, we're going to see on-ramps towards the gospel. We're going to see opportunities to share the love of Christ with them. And it's going to require courage. This is scary, right? And we sometimes wonder, do we not? Does Christ have anything to say to the guy who is stressed out after the last board meeting at work? He's letting you in on his stress. I think I'm going to lose my job. Does Christ have anything to say to that? Does he have anything to say to the woman who is celebrating the birth of her new child? Or does he have anything to say to the neighbor who just lost his wife? Does he have anything to say to these people? So here's what I, I feel like we often we forget. We, we treat our evangelism and the way we present it so often like it has something to say about your life way off there, way off out in the distance. You know, you know that kind of question that a lot of times we open up with? You know, when we release, you've been taught to open up with, you know, what will happen when you die? Or do you know you'll go to heaven when you die? As if the gospel was only relevant, is only relevant to some life way out there. I've got, I've got some points that will help you get ready for that. But what about, what about my grieving? What about my celebrating? What about my stress? Does the gospel speak to people where they are at? And the answer, of course, is yes. Evangelism isn't merely an invitation to life after death. It is an invitation to fullness of life that comes to us in Christ now. We are new creatures in Him. It is a regaining of humanity in all its multifaceted fullness. 
Every man, every woman has been created in the image of God for God. And this means, this means that the gospel, when it comes, gives us a new way to handle the stresses of life. It gives us a new way to kind of celebrate the joys. It gives us a new and fuller way to deal with the sorrows because it connects us to a father who is sovereign and benevolent. And it kind of takes us out of this two-dimensional reality that, that, that uh, we're kind of by nature born into. And it starts to make it three-dimensional as we realize there is a God who loves me. So we don't live this life the same way. We don't go to the office the same way as anyone else. We don't go for a hike the same way. When I see the birds, I see them in a different way than the unbelievers. I hear the Sermon on the Mount in the back of my head. Look at these. They They don't strive. They're not stressed. Heavenly Father provides for them. He's going to provide for me. We live in a three-dimensional world and evangelism is an invitation into that world. And that can come wherever we are, whatever they're dealing with. (laughs) Wherever human beings are, the gospel is relevant because the gospel helps us regain our humanity. It is not kind of this, oh, it's just this soul, spiritual thing, and and it has nothing to say to the body. The gospel is, (laughs) the body's going to be raised. Your heart's being made new. Families and the way you you work, the way you do family, all this stuff is changing. So the gospel can speak, but it requires courage. Christ's redemption touches all of life. And we want to be skilled at drawing those lines, at telling the story of Christ in the language of the world. So the answer to the first question, who, who will see the salvation of God? The answer is, and our prayer is, and our labor is, everyone. Everyone. Second question then how will we see? This is verses 2b through verse 5. How will we see? As we make our way um, towards an answer to this question, we first kind of come to to the second part of verse 2, what I call verse 2b, uh, and we see the arrival of the Word of God. Read this. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. After this kind of array of individuals, it's all setting up the arrival of the Word of God. And this statement is significant for a number of reasons. First, the, it, it kind of it has these same kind of phrases that the Old Testament uses for the Old Testament prophets, where the Word of God came to Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Haggai, and so on. And so it connects John to this prophetic line of his forebears. It kind of shows us that, that, that all that they've been doing before him and all that he is doing now has been pointing to, preparing for Jesus, the coming of this king. But this arrival of the word of God and the words described here also kind of serve as this dramatic breaking of, of silence. Um, it's been understood and the Jewish writers and things have talked about it that in between Malachi 
and, and the arrival of Jesus, Malachi the last prophet, the arrival of Jesus, there's been over 400 years that they call the 400 silent years, where there was no official prophet uh, commissioned by God, given the word of God, to bring to his people. So there, here we have this kind of dramatic breaking of the silence in the word of God coming to John. There's an indication here that we are witnessing the long-anticipated last days inbreaking of the kingdom of God because God is speaking again. But a third reason why, and, and most intriguing, uh, why this is significant is uh, when we consider to whom and to where God's word comes. To whom and to where God's word comes. Reflecting on the flow of these first two verses, the verses that had all these prominent figures, now moving into this verse here at the end of uh, verse 2, one commentator writes this. Hear this. The word of God appears among the powerful and prestigious, but not to them. With acid irony, Luke reports that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The names before John are accompanied by titles and offices. Emperor, prefect, tetrarch, high priest. John has no title or office. The names before John are associated with places of importance. Rome, Sephorus, which was in Galilee. Jerusalem. John lives in a place with no name in the wilderness. You got all these guys of prominence, all these places of prominence, and the word of God bypasses them and comes to this man, lowly man in the wilderness. That the word of God came in such a way is a hint at what this word would entail. And if we look at what the word is, read the first part of verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Stop there. Something is wrong with the world. Something is wrong with the status quo. Something is wrong with the kings in their palaces, with the priests in their temples. Something is wrong And so the Word of God bypasses those places and comes to John in the wilderness. And His Word, this Word that John is to speak to the world is repent. I mean, that's how Matthew records the first words of of John in his Gospel in Matthew 3. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a message to the world. Repent. And it has to strike us. It has to strike us that God chooses to break the silence of 400 years with this. Repent. It's not a word we like, right? I don't like this word. I don't like it. It's not a word we we throw around at, at dinner parties, usually. Unless we love the people we're with. You lose friends that way. When John dropped this word 
in a conversation with Herod, John lost his head. It's not a word we like. It means change your mind. It means turn around. It means you're going the wrong way. It means things are not right. It means you need to say sorry. And we hate that. I, I tell my little, do- I bring in stories of my kids. I'm sorry. But I tell, my, I tell Bella to say sorry to me or to Chloe or something. I'm not kidding you. It's like she just instantly goes deaf. Just like I didn't speak. She just sits there in silence. You can see, you can see the gravity of the fallen nature weighing on her tongue. I don't want to say sorry. Like you're too. How do you already know that just repentance is not fun? Just are you kidding me? What is this? We don't like the word. We don't want to say we're wrong. But, repent. It's not a word we so much like, but it is a word brimming with mercy. I wonder if you know that. It is a word brimming with mercy. It is a word of second chances. It is a word of ready forgiveness. As I thought about why we don't like it, why it rubs us the wrong way, here's what I think we picture. We kind of picture in like this negative way, like 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 the older brother who's like got his 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 younger brother in a headlock on the floor, and he's like making him say uncle, you know, like take it back, or I won't let you go. He's like rubbing our face in our on our issues and taking us down, making us hurt. But when God uses the word repent, that's not how he's using it. That's not what he means. He's not like, say uncle, say I'm right. It's not it. It's more like the, the rescue team. I actually heard of this happening back in San Luis Obispo where I, where I uh, went to college and things. It's more like a rescue team that comes out with the helicopter, right, and drops the rope uh, to the guy who's tried to scale this cliff but found out halfway up he couldn't do it. He's like, oh shoot. And God calls down to him, repent, turn around, grab the rope. You're going the wrong way. Death is that way. Life is this way. Come on. That's what God means when he comes to the world and says, repent. It is a word that at once brings us to face God as both holy judge and gracious Father. Holy judge and gracious Father. Hear what God says through Ezekiel to the people of Israel in uh, Ezekiel 33, verses 10 through 11. Thus have you said, Israel, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Our sins are so great. We're dead. Verse 11, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear this? You can hear the voice of of the holy judge, right? If you stay in your sin, you're going to die. 
I cannot look upon sin with favor. You will die for your sin. The wages of sin is death. It's going to happen. But can you not also hear the voice of a merciful, gracious Father? Your sins won't keep me from you. I'm coming towards you in this. I don't want you to die. I don't take delight in judging you for your sin. I want you near to me. Turn and live. But will you have me? Will you stay on that cliff's edge? I can do this. It's my story. I'm going to write it. I got this. I'm not getting low and saying I can't. And you're going to fall off. You're going to die. Or will you turn and grab a hold? The promise of forgiveness. This is why when John comes, he comes with essentially the same message. God gives John the same message to bring to Israel yet again and through Israel to the the world. And what he brings, therefore, is not just a baptism of repentance, but if read on. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In God's call for repentance, there is this already, it's already presupposed, this kind of promise of forgiveness. The call to repent is saying forgiveness is available. Will you have it? I do imagine he's saying that to some in this room. You know? We'll get into more of that in a moment, but I do imagine there are some he is saying, you turn and live. Why? Why will you keep going that way towards death? Turn and live. The verses that follow in in, uh, verses 4 through 6 are... Um, quoted from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. I want to read this again. Uh, not Isaiah 43 through 5. I want to read it in our text uh, there, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's lifting that from Isaiah 40. And what Luke is doing as he's quoting that here is is marking out John as the fulfillment of that voice crying out in the wilderness, the forerunner to this end-time arrival of the kingdom of God. John is the one who is preparing the way for the king. But there is more going on in these verses in this quotation. And I want to sit there for a moment because Isaiah, Luke, give us kind of in vivid form what I think repentance and and, and forgiveness kind of looks like. Kind of illustrates for us what this whole baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins looks like. 
shows us not only the process of it, but also the end goal of it. Because if you read carefully, what we see is, is, is there's kind of this physical and geographical shifting and rearranging going on, right? You've got high things that are coming low and low things that are being raised up and rough things that are being made smooth and, 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 and crooked things that are being made straight. And he puts in, in, in geographical and in, in physical terms... Um, what I think he's after in a spiritual sense. And that is, we are rearranging inside. Our hearts are changing inside to make way for this king. And all of this has as its goal, verse 6. As I've said numerous times, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. My original question, how are we going to see? How do we see this God and His salvation? We're starting to get there. Repentance and forgiveness of sin start to get us in the line of sight of God's salvation. What we start to, to gather from this, this analogy of things shifting and getting ready for the way of the Lord is that repentance and forgiveness is all about catching a glimpse of the King, which means, which means if there are things in our lives that we're holding on to, things that we're not turning from, we will not see Him in the way that He ought to be seen. It's this horrible reality where the things that we we hold on to so desperately in this world because we think they will satisfy us actually keep us from seeing the only one who can satisfy us. We cannot simultaneously harbor sin in our hearts and see Him clearly with our eyes. There are things in my life too high that need to come down. Things too low that need to come up. Things that are crooked that need to be straightened. Rough that need to be smoothed if I'm going to see Him. This is why the sixth beatitude reads, Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who have their hearts ready, aligned, rearranged for the King. For they shall what? See God. You want to see God? You want to see Him in all His glory? If you don't today, while I do believe, certainly, God can hide His face sometimes from His beloved children. For who knows but His sovereign will. There is also a chance that we don't see Him the way He ought to be seen because We've got stuff in the way. There's junk in the way. I'm either in a valley somewhere or there's a mountain in front of me or I'm crooked and I can't see around the bend. There is stuff in the way. This heart. And so I wonder, I mean, what is it for you? What might it be for you? I mean, I don't want crap in my life blocking my eyes from him. I see self-concern 
right? I see the cravings for the praise of man. I see sometimes wanting to hold on to bitterness and vengeance for people that, that hurt me. I, I think that'll, you know, make me feel good. I don't want to turn from that. I, I see financial security or earthly comforts or whatever it is. I don't want to let go of this. And, and, and God is coming to us and saying, turn from it and live. I'll take care of all that you need. I can satisfy. Trust me, when you see me, you will know. Where's your heart? What has your heart? He's wanting to come near. He's wanting to be seen. But what do you want? There's a reason John is calling Israel back out into the wilderness. This is pretty awesome. In the wilderness, he's this voice calling out from the wilderness, right? Israel, come out here. (laughs) In the wilderness, you have nothing but God. You remember that from the Exodus story? I brought you out here so that I could teach you. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on my word. I want you to see what's in your heart. I want you to be brought back to me fully into relationship with me fully. Who we are is exposed in the wilderness and who He is becomes plain. And intimacy with Him can become, can can be rekindled. Hear this in Hosea 2, 13-15. She, Israel, went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Let's get you back to the wilderness where all you have is God and God is enough. So it's awesome. John's baptism, I mean, there's all this scholarly debate about the background to it. But bare minimum, it seems to me, this is what's happening in John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's this call back from the land of plenty through the Jordan River that they crossed to get into that land of plenty back in the day. Through the Jordan River and into the wilderness where all they have is God. Forget the milk. Forget the honey. Forget the pomegranate and the palm tree. We want God. That's what they're saying as they come to the Jordan River. So we go out there with them. Would you leave it all to see the salvation of God? Finally, third, and this is where we'll close, what will we see? Verse 6. Of course, we know that the salvation of God is not just an action of God, right? It's not just some action. It's a person. It's the reason why Jesus' name, Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. And this is why John came 
ultimately to prepare the way for Jesus so that all of Israel and through Israel all flesh might see Him. Not just some action of God, but this person. We read in John 1, 31, For this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that He might be revealed to Israel. All this baptism and water and calling out to the Jordan from the wilderness and all this, it's so that you will see Him who is the salvation of God. So the way has been prepared. The King has arrived. And we see Him, but what we watch Him do will scandalize us because this king, though in Isaiah 40, it's like the whole, the whole universe is rearranging to make way for him. This king will not march his way to a throne. He will be nailed to a cross. It will be a scandal. We won't get it. We thought we saw it, and now it's gone. Where is the salvation of God? But we should have seen it coming. We should have seen it coming. For that long list of names in the first two verses that I spent time on, it does more than showcase for us the historical accuracy or the universal relevancy of all of this. It actually foreshadows the end. Because those many of those same figures, the high priests and Pontius Pilate and, and, and the leaders in Rome, Herod, they're all going to show up again at the end of Jesus' life, around the cross, as it were, condemning Him to death at the very beginning of His earthly ministry. We have foreshadowed the coming crisis, the coming conflict. We read about it in the saints' prayer of Acts 4, 26-28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All the kings, the Jews, the Gentiles, who are to see the salvation of God, all closing in on the Savior around the cross. And this, because of the Father's predestined plan, God predestined such horrible things for His Son because He promised repentance for the forgiveness of sins to us. Do you understand that if Jesus, the one that John came to reveal, the one who who brings to completion all that John stood for, if Jesus doesn't die for sin, then John's repentance for forgiveness of sin is an empty move. We come down, we get ready, but at the end of the day, when the judge's mallet falls, we are still guilty. We cannot be mistaken to think that repentance just kind of pays God back. 
that we just owe him a few good deeds. It doesn't work that way. Forgiveness has to come to us through the death of Jesus Christ. Because if we were guilty of one, uh, one aspect of the law, we were guilty of it all. And the wages of sin is death. There's no paying God back. All there is is repenting and turning towards the one who did pay. Jesus on the cross. Which is why, which is why, when Jesus shows back up after the resurrection, he's taken John's ministry, as it were, onto himself now. All that John stood for is his. And he says this, repentance and forgiveness of sins are proclaimed now in my name to all the nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins in His name now to all the nations. He is the one who has accomplished it. And so, brothers and sisters, if you want to see God, if you want to see the salvation of the Lord, if you want to be in close, intimate relationship with Him, I do. But God, I ask God, show us. What are we holding on to? Help me let it go. We've got to make a holy habit of repenting from our sin and, and laying hold, receiving His forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray. God, we want to abide by the cross. It's there more than anywhere else that we see the salvation of God. It is an amazing thing to have underneath my feet the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Foundation. Lord, I am not in any way implying here, and I know you're not, that that we move in and out of our salvation as we repent or don't. But man, how we miss out on the riches of intimate fellowship with you when we hold on to lesser things and refuse to turn. Thank you that Jesus is the bottom line. Thank you that he's our foundation. God, help us. Help us to grow up into that repentance and and reception of your forgiveness that, that you have earned for us. Help us to embrace you with our whole hearts that we might see more and more of your glory and be more and more conformed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.